Amen. You know, as before I, I dismiss our kids and before I pray for us, um, you know, we're, we're singing a song, singing from the victory, or we're singing this song of um, fighting a battle that's already been won. You, you think about that concept, that, that's, that's the truth, that's the posture from which Paul can say, whether I live, it's Christ, whether I die, it's gain. Like, what do you do with a guy like that? You know, hey, we're going to, if you don't stop, we're going to kill you. He's like, awesome, you know? He's like, but okay, if you don't stop, you're going to keep living. He's like, fantastic. You know, it's just this posture of being so secure and so confident in who our Christ is that you can live for him and you can die for him. So what a, what a beautiful reminder for us this morning. Um, but before I pray for us, uh, this is new for us, but if you're second through fifth grade, you've already been checked in, we'd love for you to go ahead and exit out the back. We got some kids volunteers waiting for you out back. They'll walk you to your classroom. So thank you so much. Yeah, you can just head right through that. And parents, if you need to walk them through this first couple times, uh, don't hesitate to do that. So as they dismiss, let me pray for us. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 5. Paul here in Corinthians is pretty much saying the same thing he's been saying in Philippians. He says, listen, I'm always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is his due for what he has done in the body. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for the reminder of, of these songs. Um, thankful for the privilege and the opportunity we have to praise you. Father, I'm thankful for this posture that we get to live life from. We're fighting a battle that you've already won. We're singing from the victory. Our faith is not in our circumstances, in our situations, and whatever it is that we're dealing in life, it's, it's above it. We're seated in Christ, in heavenly places. We're, we're above what's going on here. I pray that you would teach us, even in the preaching today, even in the text of Philippians chapter one, that you would teach us what it looks like from, to live from a place of faith like this. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. This feels very weird for me. Um, at some point, we'll get these lights fixed. Um, until then, this is a sleeping corner. So I'll try to keep my eye out over there. Uh, hey, but if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue in Philippians chapter 1. I said it last week. We're actually going to spend three weeks, beginning last week. So this is week number two in the same text, Philippians 1. And I'm going to give you plenty of time to get there. Um, but I had an experience, not this weekend, but last weekend, that I'm sure many of you could probably relate to. Um, I went into the kitchen to, I don't do this regularly, but I went into the kitchen to kind of cook the dinner for our family, and I kind of got started in the process when it dawned on me that I, I don't have the right ingredients to cook what I intended to cook, right? Is that ever happening to anybody else? You know, you're more planning than I am? No, it happens all the time, right? Like, I had put the chicken in the Instapot, like, because that's what you do, you know? And, and I, I went to get the tomatoes, I went to get the seasoning, and I just realized, like, I don't have any of this stuff, you know? So I had to improvise. Well, last week, y'all, we talked about how Paul possessed a singular, all-consuming passion. That passion being whether he lives or whether he dies, he just wants to live in such a way that Christ is honored. That was the word that we saw in Philippians chapter 1, that, that Christ would be honored. Honored meaning uh, to be enlarged, to be enhanced, to be magnified. The way we talked about it last week is it meant to be reflected. And I made the case, y'all, that that's not just Paul's destiny. If you can remember, maybe you weren't here, I said that that's all of our destiny, that Christ has saved us, Christ has redeemed each of us so that we would be Christians, which means little Christ. 
that when people begin to look at our life, they, what they see is a progressive person becoming more and more just like Jesus. And last week, I don't know about you, but my gut tells me that you left here um, with like a hunger for more. Like, like, I don't know what it was. I, I felt it. Like, I think we all shared it last week. There was just this, yes, like I want to live a life that, that progresses Christ more, that reflects Christ more. Like, whatever it looks like, I just want, I want more. But you probably got in your car and you go, well, how? Like, what does this look like? Like, what do we what do I need to do to actually reflect Jesus in more and more areas of my life? And y'all, I just want to be honest, I sat down Monday ready to write that sermon for you. Like, like ready to answer this question, how? But this is one of the reasons I love expository preaching. Because when I started to study the text, I realized that's not the sermon in this text. So, so if I had my way, I would come in here and probably teach on the spiritual disciplines. How do we study the word? And, and what does it look like to learn to pray? And how can we practice community and sacrament? And maybe even talk about fasting. Because everybody likes when we talk about fasting. You know that? But that would be the sermon that I felt led to lead, is, is to give you these how-tos to let you start cooking. But you, you don't have the right ingredients. And, and, and we've got we've to actually put the horse before the cart. We've got to slow down before we just launch out in our own strength and our own energy and our own effort and start applying some spiritual disciplines to try to attain this life. We've got to realize what ingredients have, has God provided us that actually serve as a catalyst into this lifestyle. Does that make sense? So that's what we want to look at today. That's what the Word of God has for us is the key ingredients to this life lived in honor of Jesus. So I'm going to read our text for us together. And then we'll begin to unpack it. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, actually 18b, the back end of that verse, says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I'll remain, and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, so that's our text. Same text we preached last week, same text this week, same text next week, okay? So we're building off last week. And what I said last week is that to live a life that honors Jesus, first and foremost, it has to be personal, right? Every one of us has to have a personal encounter with Jesus and a personal response to the grace of Jesus, right? So I'm going to assume that that's true for you. I'm going to assume that you've made it personal, which means points number two and three I'm going to assume as well, that you are, are practically seeking to progress in this life that honors Jesus. If you missed last week, you don't need to go back and listen. I just gave it to you, okay? You're practically progressing in this life that seeks to honor Jesus. So I'm assuming that you've done that, but what do you need? What, what ingredients are required for us to make this happen? Well, there's two. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. I want you to see these two ingredients. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Point number one, ingredient number one, the prayer of others. It's the prayer of others. Paul believed that a key ingredient to, to live a life that honors Jesus is to have other people praying for him. 
praying and interceding that he would actually live in such a way that honors Christ. Y'all, there's so much about the Apostle Paul that, that I admire. His brilliance, his eloquence, his, his passion. But I don't know if there's a quality quite like his humanness that I admire as much as that. Right? He's, he's just human. I said this last week, but we're so tempted to take a radical statement like to live as Christ and assume that this, this radical Christian lifestyle is reserved for some spiritual special forces, right? Just some spiritual elite category of Christian. Only the elite can say to live as Christ and die as game. But I, but I made the point that that's not true. We're, we're all called to this, that, that we all have the same starting point, that we're all human, and that includes the Apostle Paul. Paul had flesh like ours, Paul had emotional outbursts like ours. Paul had sin past like ours, even, even worse than ours. Paul had weaknesses like ours. Church, Paul knew that to live is Christ was not something that he could do in his own strength. It was something that required supernatural intervention, supernatural power. And that's prayer. Prayer puts us into touch with supernatural power. Paul frequently requested and solicited the prayers of others. Just, just listen to this. In Romans chapter 15, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, you must strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Do you hear that? He's not sitting up on some, some stage going, hey, I'm, I'm only giving you stuff. I'm, I'm your spiritual father. He's going, no, I need you to pray for me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, you must also help us by prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, he says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Church, Paul was constantly requesting people to pray for him so that he could live, live this life of honoring Jesus. Have y'all ever just admitted that prayer's a mystery? Right, that prayer's just this mysterious thing of God that we get, it, we get invited to encounter alongside with God. And, and here's why prayer's such a mystery. It's because God is omnipotent which means all-powerful, right? Everybody believes that God is all-powerful. Paul, sitting in prison, knowing that he wants to live in such a way that honors Jesus, know that he wants to die in such a way that honors Jesus, knows he needs God's power. Paul needs the supernatural power of God to live this life, right? And God could grant that to him at the snap of a finger. Could he not? He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. But this is why prayer is such a beautiful mystery, because God, in his wisdom, has somehow condescended to work on behalf of prayer. Did you catch that? The means through which God supplies his people power is through prayer. It's such a mystery. In the parable of the persistent widow, there, there was this, this widow who received justice from a judge simply because she, she would not stop asking for justice. And Jesus is given this parable in Luke chapter 18, and he holds her up as an example and says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth like that? What he's saying is when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus returns, will he find a body of believers who keep asking, who keep coming, who keep seeking, who keep praying? It's a beautiful parable. Church, prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You see, last week I made the point that this life lived for the sole honor of Jesus Christ. I said it's hard. It is hard. It's costly. It is going to cost you to live in such a way to honor Jesus. The culture is constantly going to withstand you. 
constantly, okay? The, the Satan is going to constantly try to buffet you, and your flesh is going to kick and stomp like a wild stallion trying to be tamed, okay? It, everything is going to be against you in this desire to live and honor Jesus. You're going to need spiritual power. You're going to need God's intervention, and that comes through prayer. Prayer is the ingredient that puts us in touch with the power of God. And y'all, we desperately need it. You're going to fall. There are going to be moments, there are going to be ways that we try to honor him that we just don't, that we just fail to do so. What we need is, is, is God's power. Here's how I want you to view it. Our life in God, I want you to picture like a, like a fortified city. Okay, so your life, hidden in God, your life lived for God is like a fortified city. It's, it's walls and walls of, of just impenetrable structure. Like no, nothing can get through there, okay? But when you fall, when you make a mistake, when you sin, what happens to that wall are gaps get created, right? Little, little gaps. And if you leave those gaps open, you're, you're open to vulnerability. You're open to enemy coming in. You're open to worldly, fleshly desires coming in. You're, you're open to all kinds of vulnerability. But that's why God in his wisdom has provided intercessors. You ever heard that word before? An intercessor. In the scripture, it's called intercessory prayer. That word just means someone who will stand in the gap. So when there's gaps in your life, there's somebody in prayer coming in there and going, no, this is not vulnerable. You're not coming through here. There's someone standing in the gap on your behalf. Church prayer, intercessory prayer, people praying for you. That's the power that we need. And Paul was aware of it. He was aware of his humanity, so he constantly requested prayer in order to live a life that honors Jesus. So the question I want to ask for this key ingredient is, who is praying for you? Who? Who can you think of before you leave here today to go, I need to call that, they need to be praying for me. I need to request and solicit the prayers of others. Y'all, I think about my, my late great aunt. Um, in 2007, uh, I had had this moment with the Lord where uh, I really sensed God calling me into ministry. Well, my great aunt um, had been diagnosed with polio at birth, so she was crippled in body, but she never viewed her, her lack of utility as a disability. She only viewed it as an opportunity. She says, I can't do anything, so I just spend all my time in prayer. Well, a couple hours after I had this moment with the Lord, I felt this calling into ministry. I go into to the UGA football locker room. If you're new here, that's the thing, okay? I go in there, and I get out my phone, flip phone, check my voicemail, and I have a voicemail from my great aunt that says, hey, I, I don't know what's going on. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I can't help but to sense that, to tell you, don't disobey the calling of the Lord. My confirmation into ministry was all due to intercessory prayer. I, I think of, in 2017, our family went through this really traumatic car accident. We, we were cross-cultural missionaries living in South Asia. It was incredibly traumatic for us. And we were halfway around the world, right? Anybody that we would call to, to, to receive comfort or encouragement or something, everybody's asleep in America because of the time differences. Well, everybody was asleep except for Cheryl, Cheryl, our prayer warrior. We got home a couple hours later after doing the whole ordeal and getting checked out, and, and we had an email from Cheryl saying, I don't know what's going on, but God woke me up. I sense that you're under attack. I want you to know I'm standing in the gap. I'm praying. Church, I'm telling you, there's power in prayer. Who's praying for you? Who can you request to pray for you? It's a key ingredient. We cannot live a life that honors Jesus without supernatural intervention, without the power of prayer. And it's a mystery. I don't get it. I'm like, who texted Cheryl? I don't, God did, you know? It's just a mystery, but man, it's powerful. So key ingredient number one, prayer. Go back with me to our text in Philippians chapter one, verse 19. Paul says, I know that through your prayers 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus. Here's key ingredient number two, the Holy Spirit. The key ingredient number two is the supply of the Holy Spirit. Paul says what he's dependent upon more than anything else is the Holy Spirit. Church, your salvation, the the day that it became personal for you, the day that your faith got jump-started, took place because of this thing called the Trinity, right? Because of the Trinity. Your salvation was accomplished by the Trinity. It was purposed by the Father, it was accomplished by the Son, and it was applied to you by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? It's all found in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says that the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's the Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it says you were adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, who's the Son. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit jump-started your salvation. But here's the truth. We love the Father, don't we? We want to get close to the Father. We want to know the Father. We want to grow into the Father. And we love the Son. We want to be friends with the Son. We want to get close to the Son. But when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, there's, there's two responses Christians tend to have. One, we get really weirded out. Right? And, and we're like, we don't really know what to make of this thing called the Holy Ghost, which is actually what the Scriptures say. Okay, We don't really know what to make of Him. So, so what do we do? We, we just kind of substitute the Trinity to be Father, Son, Holy Bible. Right? And we leave the Spirit out of our faith. We get really weirded out. The other extreme when it comes to the Holy Spirit is we get unhealthily obsessed with the Holy Spirit, right? It, and it gets abusive. We, we get so obsessed with the Holy Spirit, but there's a midline here. There's a biblical way for us to understand the Holy Spirit. And, and this is not a sermon exclusively about the Holy Spirit, but I think it would be wise to just take a moment and just lay a, a quick foundation for what the Holy Spirit is. Church, the Holy Spirit is the very same Spirit of Jesus, the very same Spirit of Jesus that takes up residence within us at the moment of your salvation. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you, comes to live within inside you. He's a precious gift of God because as newly adopted children, what the Holy Spirit does is he applies the new birth and the new life that Jesus has just purchased on your behalf. He applies it, okay? So this is what it means. When the Holy Spirit comes to take residence in you, you begin to have a new array of desires, loves, yearnings, and longings. When you start feeling conviction over sin, you didn't will that. The Holy Spirit is applying that to your life. When you get off your knees in salvation and go, I just want to live for you, you didn't choose that. The Holy Spirit is applying it. The Holy Spirit makes that life possible at the moment of your salvation. But what's his role after that? Right? At least we can agree the Holy Spirit's probably at play when we get saved, but what does he do after that? Did he check out? Did he go on vacation? What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives as we continue to live? Well, let me illustrate this for you, okay? In 2017, January, I went to a missionary conference in Thailand, and all these missionaries around Asia came to this one place, and I've shared this before, but the keynote speaker got up, and, and this is what he said. He said, oh man, what can we do apart from Jesus? You know, and this is a room full of missionaries. We're well-trained. Everybody goes, nothing. There's nothing we can do without Jesus. And he went, yeah, right, if only that were true. Because the point he was making is we, we do stuff apart from Jesus all the time, don't we? We do all kinds of stuff apart from Jesus. Here's a good example. Actually, last Sunday was a great example. I heard from many of you after last Sunday that you get left here with, with that desire for more. 
You left here with, a, with a, almost like this drawing, almost this invitation into a deeper life where you actually want to reflect Jesus in more areas of your life. Church, that is a desire placed in your life by the Holy Spirit. That is a spirit-rooted desire. But then you get into the car or you go to whichever Mexican restaurant you wanted to, okay? And you start having conversations and here's what you say. You say, well, what must I do to do that? Did you catch it? The Holy Spirit puts a desire in your life and you go, well, I guess I'll figure it out. We take what the Spirit starts and then we try to apply it in our own strength. We, we jump right back into this old operating system called the flesh where we become a human doing rather than a human being. But you can't live this life. You can't live a life that honors Jesus. You cannot live a life that reflects Jesus without the Spirit of Jesus, without the Holy Spirit. It's like cooking without the ingredients. Church, this is what the, the church of Galatia was doing. Uh, and Paul writes to them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, and he says, are you so foolish? Could you imagine I just said that to you all one Sunday? Just like meant it? Paul writes to the church and goes, you're, you're being foolish. He says, have you being, like having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What he's saying is if your new life and your new desires all began because of the Spirit of God, do you just expect to figure out the rest on your own? Listen, if the Spirit of God has changed you by salvation, for his, by his power, why do we seek to apply that change to our everyday in our own power? It's foolish. Paul says, that's foolish. You're living according to the flesh. You're living out this, this old operating system. I'm not a big NBA fan, just full disclosure. I don't watch it until the playoffs, but have you guys seen this new rookie that plays for the San Antonio Spurs. He goes by the name Wimby. Anybody? Okay, if you hadn't seen it. Seven foot four, okay? But dribbles the basketball like a point guard. Total freak of nature. Unicorn, okay? Here's how we need to think about this. If I tasked you to pick a pickup basketball team, you had to select five players, would you pick me or Wimby? I did start two years in a single A at point guard, okay? So I'm thankful that you got to recognize my skill. But if you pick me, you would be a fool. It would be foolish. Yet in the same way, we have the Spirit of God living within us, who according to John chapter 16, solely exists to glorify Jesus. And yet we try to live a life that honors Jesus apart from the Spirit. We try to do it in our own strength. It's it's foolish, y'all. It's foolish. It's like choosing me over Wimby. It's cooking without the key ingredients. And Paul knew that the key ingredient of of living is Christ is found in the supply of the Holy Spirit. And and church, this this way of living is referred to in various ways throughout the New Testament. Just just listen to some of these descriptors. Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul calls this way of living walking according to the Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 5, it's living according to the Spirit. In 8, 14, and Galatians 5, it's being led by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 16, it's walking by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 25, it's keeping in step with the Spirit. And interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it's referenced as walking in the filling or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I, I think with all of those New Testament descriptors, you, you start kind of getting the picture, don't you? Here's what it is. It's just living life. Now and always, doing the ordinary task of life, commuting, grocery shopping, laundry, whatever that looks like, but doing it from a posture of abiding and depending on the Spirit and not on yourself, not in your own strength, not according to your own effort. Because church, there's only two options. The Bible makes it clear. You will either live according to the Spirit or you will live according to what? 
the flesh. There is no neutral. Either you will walk in the spirit or you will walk in the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 makes it clear. It says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. So, so maybe understanding the spirit would be helped if we can understand what the flesh is. Here's what Martin Luther said about the, the flesh. He said, it's just the affections and the desires that run contrary to God. It includes affections and desires in your bodies, in your will, in your emotions, and even in your thoughts. Susanna Wesley, uh, talk about a mother that can make an impact on the kingdom of God, okay? Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles Wesley, says this, the flesh is whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs your tenderness of conscience, right? It, it, it removes that, that sensitivity. It obscures your sense of God. It takes away your desire for spiritual things. So the challenge for us, or, or maybe a better way of saying it, the invitation for us is learning to walk in the Spirit while simultaneously unlearning to walk in the flesh, right? Because it has to be both things. We have to learn to walk in the Spirit while we unlearn walking in the flesh. And, and my sermon would have been good, right? The disciplines can help here. Learning to read the scripture, learning, learning to practice community, learning to fast, like learning science and silence and solitude, like all of these things can be a real benefit here. But, it, but what's crazy is you can lean into the disciplines out of your own strength. You can actually do all of these really good godly things, but from a place of your own effort. You can enjoy reading the Bible one moment, and then what happens the next season? You don't. Why? Because you're applying all these disciplines out of your own strength. You're dependent upon yourself. This is why they probably never last for you. You enjoy praying one moment. At least you want to learn about prayer. Then what happens the next? And church, this roller coaster living is what self-will, fleshly effort will get you. So we have to unlearn doing it in our own strength. We have to learn to walk in the Spirit. And I know you're burning. You're like, how? All right, I'm going to answer it quickly. There's two, two things. There's a lot that I could say on this, but there's two simple, biblical, pragmatic ways to walk in the Spirit, okay? They're not, they're not rocket science. Here's the first one. It's all about your thought life. It's all about your thought life. It, it's, this is a battle of your brain, of your mind. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says. It says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's pretty clear. We're just like, no, it can't be that easy. No, it is. It is that simple. It is not easy. It is simple. It's not easy. It is all about where you choose to set your mind. So consequently, we would be wise to let the Word of God dwell in us richly, forming and shaping what we think and what we believe. This is done by what we read, it's done by what you listen to, and it's done by what you think about and what you meditate on. It's done by the narratives that you lit or don't lit continue to play over and over and over again in your head. Because remember, there's only two operating systems. You're either going to think according to the flesh, you're going to think according to the spirit. There's no neutral. So, so here's what happens. Most people are probably aware, I'm really not feeding my mind spiritual food right now. Right? We could, a lot of us could probably admit that's true. But then we try to like justify it, but go, well, at least I'm not feeding myself according to the flesh. Wrong. If you're not actively feeding your mind according to the Spirit, you are always passively feeding your mind according to the flesh. Always. It's, it's one or the other. You, you can't have it both ways. There is no neutral. Church, our culture is not neutral. 
The commercials that you're going to watch later this afternoon is Super Bowl Sunday, for those of you who didn't know. Right? Am I right? It's not. It's next week, Monday. What? Next Sunday? Shows you how much I care. <laughs> College football matters, okay? The commercials, here we go. Yeah, the commercials that you watch next Sunday are not neutral. They're trying to get you to think in such a way. They're trying to, to get your thoughts to, to rally around something, and it's probably not spirit. Church, we, we have to learn to walk in the spirit by allowing our thoughts to be transformed and filled with spiritual truths. What do you listen to? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? So often the thoughts that we have are just so full of lies, they're so full of deceit, they're so full of flesh. So that's point number one. We've got to train our mind to think on the, the spirit. Here's point number two, in the second pragmatic way. We just got to live out those thoughts by faith. Did y'all hear that? You're like, wait, hang on now. That's simple. It's just not easy. You just live out the truths of God's word, the truths of the spirit. You just live those out by flesh. You see, your flesh will always drive you to place your faith in your feelings. Always. Your flesh will try to make you feel like feelings are truth. But to walk in the Spirit is to place our faith in God, whose character and His ways are revealed in His Word. So our thoughts are transformed and, and, and filled with spiritual truths. Then we just simply live those truths out. Okay, let me give you an example by going back to the same example I vulnerably shared with you about my own personal life last Sunday. Last Sunday, I made this comment that over the last year and a half as a pastor, I have yearned to sit across a table with somebody physically, Share a cup of coffee and just vent the burdens and the weight of this beautiful thing called pastoral ministry. And I really appreciate how many of you came up to me and said, I'll be that guy. Okay, you missed the point. Okay. <laughs> but how lately when I had that yearning, I had that desire, I, I, I've sensed Jesus just go, why not me? Like, why not come to me? Not, why not share those things with me? And listen, as I've had to wrestle with that. That question is meant to be answered. Why? What is hindering me from coming to Jesus with these burdens? Well, here's the truth. In those moments, I'm walking in the flesh. I'm not walking in the spirit. My desires in that moment is solely driven by the fact I'm feeling overwhelmed, that I'm feeling heavy, I'm feeling concerned, I'm, I'm feeling like what I need is somebody just to, to pet me. You ever been there? You're doing a great job, baby. You know, we all have this, this I just wanted comfort. That's what I wanted. I didn't want Christ's presence. I just wanted comfort. My feelings were driving those things. So here's what it looks like. The word of God in Psalm 55, 22 says to cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. That's what the word of God says. So I've got to let that feed my mind. So I memorize that verse. I pray that verse. I meditate on that verse. And then I talk to God about that verse. Psalm 55, 22, okay? Then I let that word be lived out by faith. And this is what it looks like for me weekly. I can't pray sitting still. I don't know if that shocks you. Okay. Got to walk. So I go on these little prayer walks. Everybody sees me. They honk. It's great. So I'm walking around, and I'm praying, and I'm going, God, your word says that I can cast my burden on you. Well, buckle up. So I just vomited. I just lit it all out. Everything that I'm feeling, everything that's weighing me down, everything that's making me anxious, I lit it all down. And then I end that prayer by going, your word says that you will sustain me. And I need you. I need your strength. I need your endurance. I need your resilience. I come back into my office, and I sit down at my desk, and, and there's no light, like lightning and, and rainbows. It's just like, it's just this fresh perspective. 
There's just this release. There's this new power. There's this new resilience. And it's all because I'm walking in the spirit in that moment, not according to the flesh. That's what it looks like, y'all. It, it's, it's not earthquakes and audible voices and, and visions. Walking in the spirit is practical. It's just feeding your thoughts and then walking by the spiritual thoughts of faith, not by your feelings. So church, we need the Holy Spirit. He's the key ingredient. We must learn to walk in the spirit. But let me give you one more key insight from our text today. To live a life that honors Jesus, we need those two key ingredients, but we also need the proper motivation. We need to be properly motivated. Go back to verse 19 with me. Paul says, I I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which are the key ingredients, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance. All right, I'm gonna hone in on this word deliverance, okay? It would be really easy to assume, given the remainder of this text, Given what he says in verse 25, because in verse 25, he's going to say, hey, I'm convinced I'm not going to die. He says, I'm convinced I'm going to be freed, I'm going to be released, and I'm going to continue to help you in your faith. That's what he says in verse 25. So given what he says in verse 25, it's easy to assume what he means in verse 19 is release, right? Freedom from his imprisonment, that this deliverance is that he would be freed from prison. But this is where Bible study in the original languages can be so helpful. Because the phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, is a direct quote from Job chapter 13, verse 16. And all the scholars, all the commentators that I studied over the last several weeks really believe Paul intentionally quoted Job here. Because their situations are similar. And let me tell you what was going on in Job, in, in Job chapter 13. If you don't know the story of Job, he had lost everything. He lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his family, y'all, he had lost everything. And for 13 chapters, he had been hounded by his good Christian friends. They come surrounding him, and they're like, Job, just repent, buddy. Obviously, you've done something. Obviously, you've sinned against God, so your circumstances, your loss, all of that is a consequence of sin, and if you'll just repent, everything will be fine. Well, in in Job chapter 13, Job argues back and says, no, 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 I've been righteous. I haven't sinned against the Lord. Then he makes this beautiful statement. He says, and even if he slays me, though he slays me, I will still hope in God. Because one day I'll argue my ways to him face to face. This will turn out for my deliverance. Did you catch it? What he's saying is when all was against him, Job's deliverance, that's the word vindication, was that he knew that he was just. That he knew that he had lived a life that honored God. That he knew one day when all things would be revealed, he would stand before God face to face, justified, vindicated. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying the exact same thing. He's saying, I expect to be ultimately delivered. Not, not just in this life, but, but, but vindicated. What he's saying is when I stand before God, now as always, verse 20, I won't be ashamed. Did you catch that in verse 20? He says, I won't be ashamed. I will not be ashamed when I stand before God because I will know righteously I have tried to live in such a way that it honors Jesus, which is his passion, right? To live is Christ. But here's his motivation. His motivation is to fulfill that passion driven by, motivated by the fact that he would stand before Jesus one day. He's going to stand before Jesus one day. And on that day, he's going to have to give an account for his life. And he goes, I have lived my life and I will live my death in such a way that when I stand before him, I'm not going to be ashamed. I've lived to honor him. I lived with the end in mind. That's his motivation. He's living with the end in mind. Church, I think we would be wise to do the same. Bear with me for just a minute. What what I'm saying is that the Bible is very clear that there are rewards 
for the believer in Christ one day when you stand before him. Do you all know that? There are rewards for us. If you live a life today that honors Jesus, there are rewards. Jesus taught this. How you handle persecution and suffering will gain a reward, Matthew 5. How you pray and how you fast, Matthew 6, will gain you rewards. How you give sacrificially, Matthew 6, will gain you rewards. How you show hospitality to other believers, Jesus says, will gain you rewards in Matthew chapter 10. In Revelation 22, verse 12, he says, Behold, I'm coming again soon. My, and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. There is going to be a day where we give an account according to Jesus, and he's going to repay you for how you have lived your life. Paul taught this to the church in Corinth. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one can receive the prize? Run so that you may win it. Run in such a way that you obtain it. To the church in Philippi, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Again, to Corinth, he says, don't judge before the time. Time meaning when Jesus comes. He says, before the Lord comes. Because when he comes, he's going to bring to light the things hidden in darkness. And he will disclose the motivations of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. Paul taught this. There are rewards for how we live our lives. John taught it. Second John verse 8, watch yourselves so you may not lose what we have worked for, but you may win a full reward. Peter taught it, 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Church, this is all over the Bible. There are rewards, a proper motivation to honor Jesus so that we stand before him unashamed. But we don't want to talk about this because we're so afraid of what? Legalism. Right? We're so afraid of falling into legalism. Legalism is, is the belief that, that we live for God in order to earn his love, earn his acceptance, and earn his salvation. How many of you grew up like this? I'm with you. Don't you drink. Don't you drive. Don't you cuss. Don't you dance. Don't you fill in the blank. Right? And if you do all these things, then maybe God will love you. Maybe God will accept you. Maybe God will save you. That is dangerous. That is destructive. And it is, it is sinful. It's not true. It's an improper motivation. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, y'all, there's freedom. The gospel teaches us that you are loved, you are saved, you are accepted, all because of his grace. The gospel teaches that it is unearned, that your salvation is unearned. It is solely sourced in his kindness and in his mercy and in his love. But because he so loves us, we then desire to live for him. Is that not true? Because he has purchased us, because he is, we are recipients of his grace, I want to steward his grace in my life in such a way that when I stand before him, I've lived to honor him. We're motivated by grace, motivated to stand before him unashamed because the scriptures are clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. We must all appear. Church, we must all appear. And I need to be very clear here. This day that Paul's referencing in 2 Corinthians is not a day of judgment of sin. That's coming for the non-believer. That is coming. This is not that day. This is a day of judgment for the believers. This is not a day of judgment of sin. God the Father judged your sin the day he nailed Jesus to the cross. Did you hear that? Okay, Your sin is judged in Christ. So the day you stand before Christ as a believer is not a day of judgment. He, he's not, he's not going to unfurl all your sins like a scroll to see whether you've been naughty or nice and, and check that list twice, okay? He, he nailed your naughtiness to Jesus, and then he imputed Jesus' niceness to you. you. When you stand before him, y'all, that day will be dominated by joy, bliss, 
radiance of His presence, acceptance because of the gospel. But there will be a day that, that you need to consider less like judgment and more like, like an evaluation. There's going to be an evaluation. Here's that word, judgment seat of Christ. It's the Greek word bima, and I, I'm starting to wrap up. It's the Greek word bima. It's, it's, like, it's like picture yourself like an Olympic judge. An Olympic judge, after maybe a track and field event, he, he gets down off his seat and he hands the winner gold. And he gives the second place silver. And he, and he gives the third place bronze, right? All of them receive rewards, correct? Because some are, are more valuable than others. That's the type of judgment. That's the type of evaluation that Paul is saying is coming for us. In the same way, we must all appear before Christ and our lives will be evaluated. And Paul admonishes us, y'all, run to win. Be motivated. Live in such a way that honors Jesus because one day you're going to stand before him. There are rewards awaiting you. So, Imagine the disappointment and the shame. Not not the shame of sin, but the shame of regret. When on that day, your life is evaluated, and only then did you come to realize that you had misappropriated your life. How you've neglected so many opportunities to reflect Jesus. Paul's saying, that's a loss. That's a loss. You're still saved for sure. Heaven for sure. Happiness, 100%. Still a loss. Paul says, that ain't going to be me. I'm going to run in such a way to win. When I get there, I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm living with the end in mind. I want to be a worker approved by God. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Y'all, that is a proper motivation to depend on the Spirit, to depend upon prayer and live a life that honors Jesus. So let me close this with this. As we look at Paul's example and, and continue in the same text next week, I just want to go ahead and give you a hint. There, there is a surefire way to live a life that honors Jesus. That's to spend and be spent in the progression and in the joy of the faith of others. Did you catch that? One of the primary ways Paul sought the rewards of Christ was in his witnessing for Christ and in his discipleship of Christians. You see, nothing brings glory to God quite like the winning of souls as well as the development of those souls into lives that reflect Jesus themselves. So next week, we're going to close out this text by looking at at Paul's passion for discipleship and Paul's gain in death. But why don't you guys go ahead and stand up with me as we close out this morning. Our team will come back up, lead us through a song of response, and I'm I'm going to pray for us. And as you close your eyes, and and I just want you to hear this prayer. The prayer I'm going to pray is, is an old Puritan prayer. It comes from a devotional called the Valley of Vision. But it says, O Holy Spirit, as the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may my heart be full of thee. Give me thyself without measure, as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches. I bewail my coldness, my poverty, emptiness, imperfect vision, languid service, prayerless prayers, and praiseless praises. Suffer me not, Holy Spirit, to grieve or resist thee, but come as power to expel every rebel lust, to reign supreme and keep me thine. Come as teacher, leading me into all truth, filling me with all understanding. Come as love, that I may adore the Father and love him as my all. Come as my helper, with strength to bless and keep and direct my every step. Magnify to me thy glory by being magnified in me and make me reflect thy fragrance. Amen.